All right, we're going to now look at the scriptures together. We study the Bible every week here because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So if you have a Bible, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, you could grab one under the chair there. You can keep that if you don't have your own copy. And we'll be in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, uh, just kind of to sketch where we're going for the next few months. We've got a couple of topical sermons. We do this every January. We look at the concept of the sanctity of human life, thinking about abortion. And then we think about Martin Luther King as that holiday comes up and race and how all people can be one in Christ. We'll do that next week. And then after that, we're going back to 1 Corinthians. We'll finish that series that focuses on the corporate gathering. So when the pandemic started, we looked at unity issues at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. And then last semester, we were looking at all the kind of scary sexuality and morality issues in the middle of 1 Corinthians. And now at the end, there's this focus on the gathered body of Christ. And so we're going to kind of be able to look at ourselves and think about what does God's Word say about what it means to be a church and gather together. And that'll be in chapters 11 through 16. That'll come up in a few weeks. That'll be where we're headed for the next few weeks, a few months, actually. So today, topical sermon, thinking about the sanctity of human life, and we're looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. And the name of the sermon is, Love is Costly. Love is costly. What does that mean? That's in contradiction to the romantic ideal that you might hear in songs, you might see in stories, read in books, or see in a movie that love is easy, right? Love is something you just fall into. It just happens to you. Problem with love just happening to you is it can unhappen to you very easily, right? But biblical love is costly. It's an expenditure. It's something you do on purpose. And my son, just last week, got engaged to marry a young lady. Yeah, we're really excited. Thank you. I share this with you so that you can clap and celebrate with me. But I also share it with you because just watching him go through this process of falling in love in the romantic sense, but then choosing to love in the costly biblical sense, this has all just been fresh on my mind. It's been a lot of prayer, a lot of investment, a lot of money spent on this love. This is something very important to him, and so he's investing in it. He's choosing to love. He's not just going to let love happen to him, but he's going to follow up and, and invest in this relationship. And of course, we're very excited because we actually like this girl. She's smart and beautiful and loves Jesus and, and all of those good things as well. But, but he's making a costly investment. And biblically, that, that's really what love is. love is. Love is an investment. Something that you choose to do. It's not just something that happens to you and is easy. And so that's going to, again, touch point with the issue of abortion and the sanctity of human life, because I think that's part of the root problem with our misunderstanding of the abortion issue, is we think, well, life should always be easy. Things should never cost me anything. But all the things that are valuable in life are expensive, It costs a lot. It's difficult. It's an investment. It's something we sacrifice for. And so that's what we're going to see in this text. It's 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. 1 John is one of the little letters written by the Apostle John at the end of the Scriptures, right before Revelation, last few sets of little short letters at the end of your New Testament Bible. The Apostle John also wrote the bigger Gospel of John, which as we're heading into New Year, I just want to recommend and say, great place to start in your Bible reading 
is reading the Gospel of John. If you're not sure where to start, this book is a fantastic book. It's a true book. It's the very Word of God, but it's also a library of 66 different books. And so if you're thinking, man, I want to read the Bible this year, we've got a Bible reading plan for you in the hallway. We encourage that, but I just want to say, be careful. Don't overwhelm yourself. Start simple, right? So we've got a Bible reading plan to, to help you to move forward, or you could just read something like the Gospel of John. Just start, starting with one book is helpful. Today, we're in his shorter letter called 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, we're going to see that love is costly. Starting in verse 11, it says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Let me pray that the Spirit would meet us here at this time. We believe this is a supernatural act, and so we need God's Spirit to help us to hear the Word and respond to it and and be open to what God has to say to us. Let me pray that He would be with us. God, we pray that Your Spirit would meet us as we hear Your Word, that it would um, open our minds and our hearts, that we would be receptive to You. Lord, we pray that that we would treasure Your Word. Uh, We pray ultimately that, that we would make much of You, that we would see how good You really are and that you would transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the text, again, I've said the big idea is that love is costly. So it's an investment. It's, it's something we spend. It's something we do. Love's not just something that happens to you from the outside, but love is something that you do in response. And so we have a simple outline, three main points that we'll work through this morning as we, we work through the text in order. And that's number one, that love preserves life. Number two, love initiates. And number three, Love starts in the heart, works out from the heart, inside out, right? So love preserves life, love initiates, and love starts in the heart. Uh, We see, first of all, that love preserves life. The opposite of this is love does not murder, right? It's not about murdering, it's about loving and preserving life. It's about helping people to thrive, Caring for others. Verse 11 is where we start. It says, This is a message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. What John's saying is, like, This message has been around. Like, this is it. Like, he keeps saying this. This is, Jesus said, This is what the Old Testament was all about loving one another, loving God, loving one another. 
And John's now reiterating, yeah, this is the commandment that Jesus gave us. Later on in 1 John and other places, he's like, it's a new command, but it's not really new. It's a commandment that's been around before, right? So there's this sense and it's new that Jesus said it's a summary of everything. But there's also this sense in that it's old. It's, it's been there from the beginning, right? Like, we've always had the same moral responsibility. It's to love God and, and love other people. He moves on and starts to define what that's not, right? So what, verse 12, what is loving not? We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Jealousy, right? There's this contrast when you go back to Genesis 4 and read the Cain and Abel story that Cain was about himself. He was jealous. He hated Abel. He tried to manipulate God through his giving. We're told in the text that Cain gave some and Abel gave the best. We need to be careful not to read that the wrong way. We can read that through health and wealth gospel eyes and say, that means if we give the right way, God will be forced to bless us. Actually, the problem was Cain was thinking that way. Cain was just going through the motions. I got to give this thing to make God bless me. Abel was like, I love God. God is good. <laughs> he gave out of the overflow of his heart. And so there's a difference in relationship between Cain and Abel and God. Cain saw God is unfair as an ogre. It's kind of like the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. But Abel saw God as generous and kind. One was giving because he thought God was giving. The other was selfish and a murderer because he thought God was unfair and not loving. I have a, a picture that I found, an ancient painting. I forgot to look back up again who did this uh, painting. But it's a, a painting of Cain murdering Abel. And it's just kind of held up as this picture of the opposite of love. It comes up a lot in the New Testament. It's a very mysterious, weird story in Genesis 4, but it's brought back up again and again in the New Testament. And I want to be careful here because as we read the Old Testament, we're supposed to be kind of perplexed and chew on some of these stories and be like, oh, what does this mean? And so there's a sense in which it's right and good to see the mystery in these Old Testament stories. But it's brought up again and again in the New Testament as emblematic, as this symbol, as this big picture of like, yeah, that's, that's what we are not to do. Don't do that. Don't hate your brother. Don't be jealous of them, but care for them. You might remember what he said, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, well, yeah, you are. You should love your brother. So the big negative is do not murder. Don't kill. Now, the King James of this commandment, it's part of the Big Ten, right? Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. The King James Version says, do not kill. Uh, and it's helpful here, King James is a great translation, but to take issue that there is a distinction that can be made between kill and murder. Because the Bible does actually support, and I think most of you believe this because a lot of you are soldiers, the Bible does actually support that there's a judicious place for killing. Nobody wants to kill. I mean, nobody thinks it's a great idea. But Genesis 9 establishes this, and it's reinforced in other places like Romans 13, that there is a power of death, a power of the sword, a power of force that the state has uh, to protect the weak, to enforce what's good in society. Those boundaries are in place. Now, you don't have to believe that to be a part of our church, but that's the standard Protestant evangelical view, that there is a right and good and kind of just war, just use of force by soldiers and policemen in the right circumstances. So, so we would believe that's a distinction between murder 
and just any kind of killing, right? There are certain kinds of killing that are actually justified biblically. But clearly we are to not murder, right? Murder is, is selfish killing. Murder is saying, I'm going to kill because that person makes me mad. Or I'm going to kill because that person is taking away from my own comfort. Or I'm going to kill because I selfishly want what that other person has. And this is where it intersects with abortion, because we would believe that a human baby in the womb is actually a person, and we're not to kill them just because they're inconveniencing us or making our life difficult, but we are to honor them as made in the image of God. Now, there are other biblical places that kind of reinforce that view, and I'm, I'm happy to talk with you about this. I know it's a controversial subject. I don't love controversy, but when things are in the Scripture, we want to talk about them. And so we'd love to talk to you about this. You know, we want to have a patient conversation. But Exodus 21, right after the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, actually goes into some case law and talks about uh, a pregnant woman getting in an accident and talks about the baby in the womb as a life, as a human life being made in the image of God. And then Psalm 139 also is another cross-reference. Psalm 139 talks about God knitting us together in our mother's womb. God's intricate attention as a master artist, making human life in the womb. So that's another, again, cross-reference. There are others in the Bible, and again, we'd love to talk to you more about this if you'd like to discuss it more. But what we would say is that that's a real human life, and we are to value that human life because it's made in the image of God. To back out and say it in a bigger way, Christians have always been the people that say, Human life is valuable even if it's weak. Even if that human life might be handicapped or old or sick or very, very tiny in the womb, human life is still to be honored and shown dignity. Even if that human life doesn't speak the same language you do or you're not very familiar with that human life or you don't even like that human life, we still owe dignity to each other because we're made in the image of God. So one of those cross-references is Genesis 9 that, that talks about that as well, being made in the image of God. So as we make the connections with abortion, I, I also want to kind of address some cultural issues here because we don't talk about political issues very, very often, um, but we want to talk about biblical issues when they come up. So you kind of try to navigate this course. There's sometimes things are political and biblical at the same time, so you got to talk about them. Uh, if they're just political, we try to avoid them, basically, just so you know kind of how we roll here. Um, but it's kind of becoming cool to criticize how conservatives are concerned about abortion. I don't know if you hear this in the broader conversation, but more and more people think, well, conservatives care too much about abortion, and it's used by corrupt politicians as a tool of manipulation. Have you ever heard that before? And what I want to say is two things can be true at once. Yes, corrupt politicians will use anything to manipulate us. It happens all the time. So I just kind of want to concede that. Like, yeah, it's definitely used to, to manipulate people. That doesn't mean that the issue doesn't matter, <laughs> right? It can also still be an issue that matters. Like human life still matters. Do corrupt politicians use, thing to, use things to manipulate us? Yes. Happens all the time. That shouldn't make us cynical and just say, okay, so we can't talk about these issues. It, it still matters. It still an important issue. Another thing that I want to talk about is we're often told, we're kind of bullied into not talking about abortion by being told, well, you know, people that care about abortion, they don't care about anything else, right? Have you heard that one before? Um, 
So here's the thing. It's okay for people to care about different things. Like, that's all right. None of us have all the time in the world to care about every single issue that exists. So it's okay to care about some things more than others. That's fine, right? If it's a biblical value to God, it's good to care about it. And so I, would, I just want to make the case that this is a really important issue by means of scale, right? And so we should care about everything. I think we should. We should care about everything. I just want to make a simple case that this, by means of scale, is actually a bigger issue than some of the other comparative issues, right? Um, so a couple of comparisons. Here's one. There are 100 to 300,000 roughly abortions every year in our country compared to one to 3,000 cases of criminal violence every year, right? So think about that. We're told, well, you don't care about criminal violence. You just care about abortion. Okay, I actually do care about criminal violence. I care about that issue. We've met with the police in our city. We care about that. We've prayed about that. We work towards that as well. But, but like 100 to 300,000 cases versus 1 to 3,000, that's a different scale. That, that's a big scale. So I'm just arguing again. Abortion is a, is a pretty important issue. And then another number, 60 million abortions since 1973. Um, this also has kind of personal contact for me because I was born in 1973. My generation's smaller because of abortion. There have been 60 million abortions since 1973 versus about 7 million people in jail or in prison. So another issue that I think Christians should care about that's biblical, Jesus said we should care about it, is people in jail and in prison. A lot of people are wrongfully imprisoned. We should care about reforming our justice system. Yes, our justice system. We should care about these things, but the scale, again, 60 million abortions versus like 7 million people? There's a, there's a, there is a difference of scale. So I just want to argue that this is a valuable, worthwhile thing to care about. Don't be bullied online that Christians and conservative people are wrong to care about abortion. No, it's, it's a big deal. It's a big issue, and we should be concerned. So one more thing that I want to say, and this is where it gets a little more personal, so I, I just pardon me, and I, I just pray that this would be received properly. But a former member expressed this online. I was not able to get in contact with them. Uh, they didn't respond to my communication. But this is a little small quote. Former member said this, um, I never felt guilt or shame about my choice uh, to have an abortion until the church convinced me that I was supposed to feel guilty and ashamed about this and that I needed to heal that wound. She said, but the church had created the wound so they could boast about how they had helped me heal. Um, No, that's not true. We just want to pause for a minute and say, we believe actually that human beings feel guilt rightfully so, about all kinds of things. So we just want to be very clear that we're, we're not saying abortion is some like extra bad, more guilty thing. To be a Christian is to say, I'm guilty before a holy God. I haven't loved others the way that he's called me to love others. So we're all guilty. We're not saying, because this is an important issue, that means you're supposed to feel extra bad about this. And we want you to feel extra bad about that so that we can you know, get the praise for for making you feel better about it. No, we're saying all human beings actually are guilty. Your feelings are kind of secondary. My feelings are kind of secondary. It's kind of right that we would feel that guilt, but we should run to Jesus and he heals us of that guilt. He he bears our shame. He takes our guilt on the cross. And so we're not trying to argue that you should feel extra guilt for this issue than you do for some other issue. No, we should all feel guilt about all the wrong things we've done. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
And Christians are the people that say, yeah, I'm a sinner. There's this huge misunderstanding because so many churches don't actually preach the good news of Jesus. So again, we want to own that. Just like there are corrupt politicians, yep, there are. And there are corrupt churches that say, hey, to be a Christian is to be the person that's good and doesn't do bad things. No, that's not what a Christian is. A Christian is a person that admits we've done the wrong things. Now, does God want us to then try to do the right things? Yeah, we want to start trying to do the right things, but we're the people that admit we've messed up. So we, just, we need to be really clear about that, especially as these, these conversations are going to keep getting more and more heated in the culture. More and more, the things we say are, are being condemned as, as hate speech or as causing psychological harm. All true believers in Jesus have undergone huge psychological harm because we've realized we're guilty. We really are guilty. But Jesus loves us. He didn't just leave us to languish in our guilt, but he ran to us in the cross. And, and that's the good news. So then what do we do about this, right? If this issue really matters, what, what can we do about it? There's a million things you can do, but here, here are a few suggestions, right? A few suggestions of things you can do. Uh, number one, we partner with a ministry called Hope Pregnancy Center. It's a fantastic ministry. Lots of churches in the area partner with them. I go and pray with them sometimes. We, they do banquets. A lot of folks are involved in the ministry. Our church gives funds to them. What, what Hope Pregnancy Center seeks to do is come alongside women who are faced with an unwanted pregnancy and say, we get it. You may not be ready to do this, but let us help you, right? And so materially supporting women that are in that bind and saying, how can we help you to maybe figure out a way to give that child up for adoption or figure out a way that you can keep that child? It's going to be hard. It's going to be costly, but you can love this child. And so we, we love Hope Pregnancy Center. We would encourage you to give financially to them. We'd encourage you to maybe become one of their volunteers. They do great volunteer training. We have brochures in the hallway. Encourage you to partner with them. Another ministry is Foster Love Bell County. Uh, we partner with them as well. We send funds to them. We encourage you to support them financially. They're trying to help attack the foster and adoption issues in our community. Bell County, if you do not know, has one of the highest child abuse cases in the country. Um, we're, we're one of the worst rates of child abuse in the country. So it's a huge problem. And so you can support through sponsoring Foster Love Bell County, specifically a really good first step besides giving financially, is to just be trained to do respite care, um, basically to be a certified babysitter or child care provider for people that are doing foster care. Because a lot of you are like, man, that's like fostering a child may be more than I can bargain for right now, but there's this, this lower level of buy-in where you could just get trained and be certified to, to do child care, to help out your friends that are keeping a foster child. That's a great first step that you could take. They do their training, uh, a lot of it online, so you can kind of get started right away and then finish up the training in person at different events. Um, here's another thing you can do, sponsoring a child through Compassion International. Uh, every year in the spring, we have a Compassion Sunday. You can sponsor a child through Compassion. It's a great ministry. Uh, I've gotten to work with them a lot in the past, do site visits, kind of see how it actually works on the ground in Guatemala. Um, it's a great ministry. What they do is they come alongside healthy churches and then try to bring Western financial support to come along and help children that are already connected to these healthy churches and, and help them to thrive in third world countries where they're really struggling. Here's some other things you can do. Uh, care for the kids that are already there in your own circle of influence, right? God's put children, you might have your own children, right? Care for them, <laughs> love them. It's costly, but preserve their life. Sometimes you may not feel like it. Preserve their life care for them, help them to thrive. 
You may not have your own kids, but you're an, uh, an uncle or an aunt in the body of Christ. Care for those kids that God's put in your circle of influence. You could teach Sunday school or work in the nursery here. You could just be a good big brother, big sister, mentor in the body of Christ. Care for those kids that God's placed around you. And now, just a couple of suggestions, because I'm a grandpa, so I get to say things like this. Um, if you have kids, limit the time that they are playing with screens. What I, the picture I want to give you is like handing your kid a screen is kind of like handing them cocaine, okay? Like, be careful. Like, you know, maybe, you know, this is in the news right now. Maybe opiates are good to use sometimes under a doctor's care, but don't just hand it out willy-nilly, right? Be careful. It is dangerous. It is addictive. It, it causes issues with our brains and how we process things. Be careful. Limit, limit, limit screen time for your children. Another thing that I want to say is discipline your children, Right? The two D's of raising children, and you know I want to do a whole sermon on this, but this is just a little sidebar. Um, The two D's are discipline and delight. And I see most parents kind of falling off one side of the horse or the other, right? Your parents were hard, so you're going to delight in your kids. Your kids are going to know that you love them. That's good, but discipline them too, okay? Or maybe your parents were really fun, but there was no order. So you're going to crack down and have discipline, delight in them too. Have some fun with your kids. They need to know that you love them, right? Discipline and delight. And then the third thing is, is this. Um, make sure that your kids know that working hard is a good gift from God. I think we're in this weird place where we think like kids are supposed to play and then adults work hard and are bitter about it, right? That's kind of where our culture is. But work is a gift from God, right? Like that... It's a gift from God. It's cursed, right? But everything is cursed. Everything's cursed, but work is a gift from God. Before the curse came in, God had gave us work to do, right? So teach your kids to work hard, and it can, it can be a joy. That's, that's part of raising kids. Okay, I'll move off the grandpa soapbox there. Um, love preserves life. Second point is this. Love initiates. Love initiates. Um, so Jesus is a model. Jesus didn't just sit there and say, Go ahead, burn in hell. I don't care. Um, he, he ran after us. He came for us in love. He left the comforts of heaven. He initiated. He moved into our neighborhood and came to save us. And we are to imitate Jesus. We are to initiate love for others. Love initiates. Verses 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And then what does it say after that? And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus died for us, so we are to die for others. Love is costly. Love initiates. Love says, man, I sure am comfortable sitting right here. I see a need over there. So I'm going to step out of my comfort, and I'm going to seek to meet that need. Now, Christians have to be careful. We're not Jesus. We're not God. We are finite. That's one of the beautiful things of actually apprenticing yourself to Jesus is Jesus lived as a human. And Jesus didn't do everything everywhere all the time either. He lived as a human dependent on the Father in prayer. So it's great to read the scriptures through the lens, reading the gospels of like, what did it look like for Jesus to live as a limited person? He took naps. He ate food. He wasn't everywhere and every place all at the same time. He said no to people sometimes. So there's a lot of freedom in apprenticing yourself 
to Jesus. So don't think that initiating love means you initiate and just solve all problems all the time everywhere. No, you, you can't. You got to walk by faith. You got to live being led by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you respond to a need. Other times you're like, I can't do that. I got to go take a nap, right? That's what Jesus would do. But often love initiates because Jesus initiated to love us. Lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So if you see needs and you're like, nope, mm -mm, I'm holding on to my needs. I'm holding on to my goods. I'm not meeting those needs. He's saying that that's a problem, right? Now, again, that doesn't mean the other extreme of Therefore, let's all become Marxists and we'll solve it all right now. Like, he's not saying that, right? He's not saying we can meet every need top down through coming up with a perfect system. No, he's just saying, see needs and respond. Case by case. We have to be really careful because we're in such an over-politicized age where it's either, you know, the answer is Marxism or the, the answer is Ayn Rand. You know, there's like these extreme positions. And as we live through these things and we try stuff, often just through experience, we're driven to one side or the other. We get sick of seeing suffering, so we're driven towards a political reality that'll solve all suffering. Or we get sick of of people using us and manipulating us, so then we're driven through. I'm not going to do anything. I tried to help people. As I've been a pastor for many years now, I've helped a lot of people and gotten hurt and bitten and attacked for it. And so it's easy for me to say, you know what, I'm going to close my heart. I, I can't. It's easy to become cynical. Guard yourself against that. Continue to initiate. Are people going to hurt you and it's not going to work out when you help them? Yes. He's not saying help people and it'll work out every time. He's saying don't close your heart. Keep helping people. It's not going to work out every time, but Jesus helped you, so keep helping people. Now, a great cross-reference that he's kind of pulling the language out of with this closing your heart versus opening your heart is Deuteronomy 15. If you want to study this subject more, read Deuteronomy 15 where God talks about building this just society. This just society is this beautiful, nuanced reality where it doesn't really fit perfectly with any of our political realities today in America. It's something altogether different. God's smarter than we are. Read what what God says in the Old Testament. It's beautiful. But he talks there about not closing off our hearts to the needs in the world. And, And what's really interesting is there in Deuteronomy, he has these two quotes that are quoted in the New Testament One is like, you shouldn't have poor among you. And that's pulled out in Acts chapter 2. One of the beauties of the new community of the church was early on, they didn't have any poor among them because they were helping each other out, right? It wasn't commanded. It wasn't a law that they had to. It was just a reality of they were so generous that poorness kind of started to disappear in that first church. But then also in Deuteronomy 15, he also says, you know what? There's always going to be poor among you. (laughs) He says both things. He's like, work towards not having poor among you, but you know what? There's always going to be poor among you, and keep helping them. Jesus says that also when this great sacrifice is made, and Jesus is anointed, and Judas was like, oh, we should have helped the poor, right? (laughs) Jesus is like, it's okay that they spent that money to worship me. That's good. You'll always have the poor among you. What does Jesus mean there? He's quoting Deuteronomy 15. He's saying, you'll always have the poor among you, meaning you'll keep helping the poor. You'll just keep doing it. You'll always have opportunities to do that. It doesn't mean you'll always have the poor among you, so don't help them. It means they'll always be there, so keep helping. Keep initiating. Keep serving. I want to praise 
you as a community for the ways that you have responded so well to the needs that we've seen through our relationships with Guatemala. We have a sister church in Guatemala. One of the kids that was raised up in our church is now one of our first homegrown missionaries, Natalie Rocco, our women's ministry director's daughter. She's a missionary there on the ground in, in Guatemala working with one of our sister churches, and the pandemic hit them a lot harder than it hit us, and people were literally starving. And so we sent funds, you sent funds, to help them feed people. We saw a need with our brothers and sisters in Guatemala, and you met those needs. So I just want to say thank you. I see this happening in our community, in our body, and, and in countless other ways. That's just one particular way that, that I can highlight, because then that's an application. Those of you that didn't know about it, hey, jump on her support team. You can partner with Natalie Araco. She's teaching English, teaching the gospel, but also helping people physically. I grabbed a picture here of food bags that they were putting together. These are members of Natalie's church there in Shavok, Guatemala, putting together grain bags. A couple of uh, Christmases ago, Natalie was here and we were arm wrestling. And man, she can arm wrestle because she's been lifting these feed bags. She's gotten, she's gotten really strong. Um, I did beat her, but barely, and it, it was terrifying. Okay, here's some other cross-references for you, and then we'll move on from this point. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are the household of faith. So when I was reading this text in 1 John, you you might have said it was talking about the brothers. So we want to be careful to say, yeah, we prioritize the brothers, the body of Christ. We do prioritize the body of Christ, but we're also to do good to everyone. And so it's helpful, I think, as we read the scriptures and all the scriptures about this to think in, in concentric circles. Family comes first. It really does. And then family of Christ, brothers and sisters of Christ, comes Next, and then everybody, right? Because remember the story of the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan? The guy was asking Jesus, like, okay, Jesus, I hear you saying I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but really, who is my neighbor? Like, he was kind of trying to wiggle out of it, and Jesus blew that up. (laughs) Jesus was like, well, let's talk about the neighbor that you hate, the guy that's the wrong religion and the wrong race, and you despise him. Love that one, too. So Jesus blows it up to everybody. New Testament says, Love everybody, but especially the household of faith. So I think it's helpful to just think in concentric circles. Again, you can't help everybody everywhere all the time. Look at your family. Look at the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Look at everybody else in the the community. Pray. The Lord give you supernatural wisdom, and you can help who he wants you to help. But initiate and begin following Jesus and looking like him. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So again, that's kind of reiterating. Start with your family, move out from there. 2 Timothy 3 gives us this other insight of we want to help people to be independent. We don't want to just hand out things to people, but we want to help them grow to take care of themselves. So 2 Timothy 3.10 says, Even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Right? So in our text in 1 John, it's like if you see your brother with need, meet that need. Yes. But also, if your brother keeps not working, eventually you're like, okay, brother, you need to get a job, right? (laughs) It it stops eventually with tough love, and you want to help them become independent, right? So there's, it's this nuanced thing. It's not all one or the other. One of my favorite books on the subject that we would read when we'd go to Guatemala is called When Helping Hurts. It's by Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. Um, This is kind of their original big book. They have some smaller ones that are shorter if you don't want to read the whole... uh, 250 pages here. But the subtitle is How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Yourself. Right? So you want to help people, but you want to help people wisely. 
I think that's the, that's the Christian balance. And we can swing from one side or the other. Just help everybody all the time, fix all the problems. Or the other side of like, yeah, I tried that, didn't work. I'm done with helping people. You want to just kind of move along at a pace and keep going when helping hurts. Great book. So what are next, next steps you can take? Maybe it's people in your own family. Maybe it's neighbors. Who are the people that God's bringing into your view that you can help? You can get on Natalie Rocco's support team, help with her ministry in Guatemala, pray for her, support her financially, um, get involved with ministries here, like the nursery, just, just serving, right? Just doing something. You may not be doing anything. Maybe Compassion International. There are different ways you can take next steps of just kind of trying to help, trying to begin to build these muscles of initiating God's love in other people's lives. Okay, last point. Last point is love starts in the heart. So here's the thing. We can hear everything that's being said about love, and we can start to think, okay, so the solution is that I love, and if I start loving, then God will be forced to love me in return. We've got to be careful, because that can be sometimes described as legalism or the health and wealth gospel, and that's a misunderstanding of the gospel. The true gospel is Jesus loved me, Jesus loved me first. I didn't deserve it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't want it. I was running the other direction, but Jesus loved me. And because Jesus loved me, my heart's changed. Now I want to obey him and love other people. And I'm taking faltering steps. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to serve people, trying to obey him. I'm trying to follow with his moral commands, but it's because I'm convinced of his love for me. That's the good news. That's the gospel. The alternatives to the gospel are, like I said, sometimes called legalism, which is I'll obey these legal commands, and then God has to bless me. It's like a vending machine. I'll put in my quarters of faithfulness, and God has to give me the stuff I want. No, that's not, that's not the gospel or the health and wealth gospel. I'll give more money. And just to be clear, we want you to give us lots of money, okay? But that's not the gospel, right? I'll give more money, and then God has to bless me. No, you give because you believe God has blessed you in Christ. So love starts in the heart. 1 John three nineteen. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, right? Your heart's probably questioning right now, God, am I doing the right thing? Where am I at? What am I supposed to do? What should I do next? Your heart's questioning. If we have the truth, we can reassure our heart before us. Verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So if you're unsure, if you're questioning, run to Jesus. Don't hide from him with your heart questions. Bring your heart to him. He can see it all anyway. Say, God, what do I do with this? I'm not sure about this. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. I know Jesus loves me. I have confidence before him. Verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. Now, again, that's a whole nother sermon on prayer, right? Whatever we ask, he gives it to us. God, give me a car. Where's the car, right? Like we can get really confused about that. He's saying you have a real relationship with Jesus. You're talking to him because you know he loves you. The answers can get a little complicated uh, for the rest of it. Verse 23, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. So it's easy to kind of hear the stuff about commandments and qualifiers and think, okay, so he's back to saying, if we keep his commandments, then he'll be forced to bless us again. No, he's like, here's, here's the main commandment. Believe in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Jesus gave himself for you. Do you see that? Do you know that God is gracious and kind to you, even though you're a sinner, I'm a sinner? We should feel guilty. We are guilty. 
yet Jesus is moved to sacrifice himself to remove our guilt? Or are you unsure about that? Make sure you're sure about that. That is the primary commandment. Believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. That's the changed heart. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you supernaturally so that in Galatians and in Romans, it says the Spirit helps you from your heart to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, that's not about exact words, right? doesn't mean you need to speak Aramaic or say Father. What it means is I now have a new relationship with God. He's, He's adopted me. He loves me. That's what it means. The Spirit helps your heart to relate to God in a new way. He's no longer this evil ogre that you're mad at, like Cain, and you want to murder people, but he's now melted your heart. You're like, God loves me. There's really no good reason for God to love me except for God's love. I see that in the cross. God loves me. You have a changed heart. The Spirit enables that reality. The Spirit changes your heart. So love starts from your heart and works out from there. Often throughout Scripture, the analogy is of roots. I grabbed a picture of a tree with, with big roots that you could see. We had a huge winter storm last year. A lot of trees are, are damaged from that. The trees that had a strong root system, things started to grow back. Trees with rotten roots that were broken down underneath, they're gone. Jesus talks a lot in the New Testament about you can judge a tree by its fruit. And if a tree has good fruit, that means it's healthy deep down underneath in the root system. If you love people, it's because you have a changed heart. When I was in my teen years, I started going to church. Started going to church around the age of 12, junior high and high school. In that church, you were given an opportunity to pray this prayer. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Um, Will you save me? And I prayed that prayer multiple times. Perfectly good prayer, right? Pray that prayer. But here's the problem. I never believed that prayer. I prayed that prayer over and over again, and about the age of 17, I started to realize, oh, I don't actually love God. I don't actually love other people. I'm a selfish jerk. I don't have a new heart. And I actually realized I needed to believe that prayer. I needed to believe that prayer and fully trust what Jesus had done for me. And then I saw the cross in a new way. Like, oh, Jesus loves me. These are not just little magic incantation words I say over and over again. Jesus loves me. He gave himself for me. That's what I want you to see. And that's what changes our heart. And as our hearts are changed, then then we begin to take faltering steps, not perfect steps, but faltering steps of of love and and service and initiation and care for other people. Again, God doesn't love us because we've loved others perfectly. God loves us because he's a loving God. And he initiated through Jesus. And then because of that love, we start to change. We're changed from the inside out. So, Applicationally, what do we do with this? I think it's important to examine your own heart, but not too much, okay? (laughs) What do I mean by that? Well, we can turn it into like its own religion where you're just obsessed with your heart and it's just constant navel gazing and you're looking at yourself and you're like, well, what do I think and what do I feel and how do I feel about this? And be careful. There's a good model prayer in Psalm 139. Psalm 139 says it this way. Psalm 139, verse 23, search me, God, know my heart, right? Because the scripture is pretty clear. We can't really even know our own heart. So it becomes a prayer. God, will you examine my heart? Because I'm not sure if I'm doing this right. Search me and know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. 
See if there is any offensive way in me and then lead me in the way everlasting. That's a great place to start. God, will you look at my heart? Do I, do I love you? Do I, do I trust you? Will you search me? Will you lead me to see that you're good? Lead me in the way everlasting and then preach the gospel to yourself. Jesus is the answer. And then pray that prayer, but mean it. Jesus, I see that you're, you're good. You came to save me. You took all my sins upon yourself on the cross. I'm a sinner. You're the Savior. Jesus, I need you. You can pray that prayer right now. You can pray that prayer later in conversation with a friend. Entrust yourself to Jesus. We'd love to talk to you more about that. Love is costly. So the call, this message, this old message that keeps being repeated is to love one another. But the why is because because God has loved us first. So love is costly. God's asking you to spend everything you have, but he's filled your bank account. He loved you first. He loved me first. Love is costly, but Jesus loved us first. So he gives us everything we need to love others because he loved us through his death and burial and resurrection. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you loved us. Thank you that you sent Jesus for us. Help us to love others. As we think about political issues, Lord, we, we want to value life. We want to preserve life. We want to care for children and the least of these. We want to care for those that don't look like us or that we don't understand. But God, it all starts with the heart. We recognize that you cared for us when we did not deserve it. When our lives were full of shame and guilt, you, you came for us. You worked to remove that shame, to remove that guilt by dying on the cross. We thank you for that, and we pray that that would translate into us actually living differently, us actually caring for others, us actually serving our neighbors in love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.